Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This is Mary Murphy, and ready or not, it's time to get wicked. Warning, The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Hello, all you listeners out there, and welcome to Season 11 of The Wicked Library. This is episode number 1110, episode 10 of season 11. My name is Sadie Hartman. You might know me on social media as Mother Horror. I review horror fiction for several different platforms, including Cemetery Dance, Scream Magazine, Grim Dark Magazine, Lit Reactor, Tor Nightfire, Mystery and Science Magazine, The Lineup Weekly, And I'm the co-owner of the horror monthly subscription service, Nightworms. I'm also an active voting member of the Horror Writers Association. Horror is a very important part of my life. I have made a career out of freelance writing articles for various platforms about horror and showcasing horror, amplifying its importance. Um, But I also read and review it. Um, and make money um, writing reviews, professional reviews for various different platforms, as I previously mentioned, and then also the monthly subscription package where we curate horror, my business partner Ashley and I, um, and make wonderful packages tailored around specific horror for our customers. And the reason why I kind of got involved in just this genre in particular is because I'm a very timid person in real life. Um, I feel like I don't take any risks. I'm not very adventurous. I don't like to go outdoors and do scary things. I'm not Stephen Graham Jones. Um, I really just like to stay indoors and read my books. Um, but it is adventurous, the things that I read. It's risky. Um, a lot of people, when I check out at the bookstore and plop down a huge stack of horror, they're like, oh, I wish I could read horror. It's just too scary and I can't sleep at night. And I'm kind of like, hmm, well, that's uh, my spicy life. And um, I'm sure that you go biking or, you know, some other dangerous thing like jumping out of airplanes or something that I wouldn't do. So that's the way you live adventurously. Um, So yeah, horror is a very important part of my life and has been for a really long time. I am so honored that the Wicked Library asked me to introduce Haley Piper's story today. This episode was written for the Wicked Library. Her story, A Little Too Late for Little Green Men, was featured in their 2020 Pride Month celebration episode. 
So feel free to check that out also if you really enjoyed this story that we are going to listen to today. The Wicked Library also wants to thank you who are listening for currently supporting the show on Patreon. They really make the show possible, all the patrons and their support. Um, It allows the Wicked Library to make sure that those that contribute to the show don't work for free. And it's a huge, huge deal in the writing community um, for authors to be paid for their work, for writers to be paid for their work. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com Wicked Library. It's just like $3 a month and you can help make this show possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library and really do rely on this support to help pay the authors, the voice actors, the composer, the artists. And in addition to knowing that you're part of making this show possible, you also get rewards like free uh, ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, um, access to bonus stories, and higher levels of support. You get even more rewards. So again, that's patreon.com uh, Wicked Library. And now I get to introduce the story that we're talking about today, Anything to End the Loneliness by Haley Piper. You guys, I just have to tell you that I read this story at night by myself in my bed. My husband was out of town and I was immediately immersed in this story. Haley does a fabulous job setting place and giving the reader but you are the listener, a real, a real sense of intimacy as you share this space and time with the character. Um, I have to tell you that I was really feeling some feelings in this one. Um, like the title suggests, uh, anything to end the loneliness. This is a story about loneliness. And I think that we can all relate to a feeling of isolation at one time or another or just a feeling of not being loved or cared for in the way that we would hope. I just know that you're really going to enjoy it, and I'm excited for you to hear this for the first time. The storyteller is Mary Murphy, the custom score composed by Nico Vitesse of We Talk of Dreams. And you can find more information about all of them and me at the Wicked Library website. I am a creature of habit. After completing a task 100 times without incident, such as collecting tissue samples from a depositor specimen's terrarium, I assume there will never be an incident. I assume no malice when its tail curls like a beckoning finger. This is the only part of its gray, skull-sized body that seems out of place for an otherwise octopus-looking creature. The tail holds me in its sway like a charmer to a snake until the depositor tenses the rest of its body 
and springs at my face. They can't take all the credit for outsmarting me. I've been distracted often lately. I raise defensive arms, but the impact knocks me to the floor and slick tentacles grapple my face. The depositor's damp underside sinks across my brow, nose, cheeks, to smother me and stuff a prehensile tube inside me. No more assumptions. No more distractions. The depositor will impregnate me, and an embryo will eat my organs. Alien maggots and terrestrial roadkill. My last thought, as its tail grips my neck, is that I'm getting exactly what I deserve for asking Bianca to choke me in bed shortly before she left me. Except death pauses. The depositor's damp, swamp-smelling flesh presses the tip of my nose, and its wet coils clamp black hair to pale scalp, but it doesn't finish smothering me. No tube juts from its knotted torso and down my throat. Co-workers' shoes pat the laboratory's tile floor. Steel tongs squeeze the depositor's sides and peel it from my skin. A usually impossible task made doable by its hesitation. Daniel stands over me, the tong wielder. Chestnut hair smoothed back from a lined, nervous face. He manages a smile, probably to reassure me. The smile splits into shock when the depositor thrashes, realizing it has choices for whom to impregnate, but its chance is gone. Missed me, didn't kiss me, I guess. Daniel stuffs it into the terrarium, seals the lid, and helps me to my feet. I don't look at him or the others in their stained and wrinkled white lab coats, except where their reflections haunt the row of terrariums. Each house's one or two depositors, trapped behind thick glass, where they scurry over warm stones or submerge in murky alcoves. We can only guess at their home planet's conditions, but a humid environment keeps their skin from cracking. I should be dead. Did my depositor detect a disease in me? Lose interest? Suffer extraterrestrial erectile dysfunction? They're simple organisms, not like the adult. And a depositor might be prone to muscle seizure, or sudden confusion at having escaped its humid enclosure to the chilly laboratory. Perhaps I just wasn't its type. Nothing new there. Daniel and the others mumble about luck in close call, but I'm familiar with going untouched. By humans first, and now by other species. Tentacles slide across the terrarium's interior glass and leave a fluid smile in their wake. This isn't a kindness, Jen, they tell me. I've left you to worse. Thank you, I say. Surely my co-workers think I'm speaking to Daniel or to God, or to the depositor for granting a second chance at life. But really, I don't know what else to say. I never do. My sister has praised me for at least dodging an apology addiction, but I'd rather be silent. That won't do, of course. Silent women get wondered about. We have to be quiet in the right ways. Daniel and the others classify the depositors and what grows from their embryos as having no genitals, and therefore no reproductive lives of their own. They suggest what we've seen to be only biological automatons, 
reproduced from some unknown greater organism. Each time they bring this up, I hum as if I've never considered this. They like that. They would not like if I questioned why they bind genitalia and reproduction to life itself. They would raise eyebrows if I suggested the depositor is an advanced form of sperm or spore, or if I told them most life forms don't cling to human expectations. But I don't shatter their visions of an alien, egg-laying Virgin Mary. I have enough trouble at work and need to be the good one. My co-workers can only stomach so many broken expectations. Trifecta Global Incorporated brims with secret research and mysterious promises, and I've unmoored our cubicles, testing labs, and observation deck with new behavior, new name, new pronouns. Haven't I been difficult enough? Maybe that's why I became careless at the depositor's terrarium. I was desperate for contact. An unleashed depositor should have coupled with my face without thought. And yet even that certainty has been shattered. Nothing about our specimens can be taken for granted. Not even once unwavering hostility. Without speaking a word, I taught the lab something, and in a way they wouldn't resent. If only I could gain anything worthwhile from having to run inside the ladies' room and wash depositor slime off my skin. They're not used to me yet. I should have sprung out when I was a teenager. No, when I was a child. We're supposed to know ourselves all along, aren't we? Kindergartner me should have figured out I would study biochemistry, that I would work at the underground research facility of Trifecta Global, that I was a girl, and that if I forgot to dot my small eyes with hearts in middle school, I should expect no pity at 40 years old. I was alone then, too, Endless hours of childhood to sort out my future, but I let the time rot, staying holed up in my room, reading book after book. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Supreme loneliness doesn't end out of selfish want. Someone outside the self must want to help end it, and I had no one. The general understanding used to be that our facility employed two women, and neither cared for the revelation of a third already present. Maya emerges from a stall while I'm still scrubbing my face, and she hurriedly washes her hands. I've taken up the middle basin without thinking, and she has no choice but to stand beside me. Her hair is as gray as the ladies' room walls. Her mood is sullen. There is no polite nod or chatter before she slips toward the door. She no longer speaks to me. Meanwhile, Hani speaks too much. She flits around Maya with a thoughtful hand to the arm as they pass each other through the ladies' room doorway. Connie's lab coat is pressed and pristine. Her heels click across the tile floor. Blonde hair bobs atop her head. But she pauses at the sinks to fix loose strands in the mirror. Red smile and blue eyes glance my way. Heard you had a close encounter, she says. I scrub another paper towel down my cheeks and offer tepid agreement. Connie finishes with her hair. Don't mind, Maya, she says. And don't ever feel like you don't belong in our restroom, okay? You have every right to be here. Her insistence reaches around my skull 
as tight and alien as a depositor's tentacles. I've been out of the closet at work for months now. I know these things. Why does she repeat them to me? Is she overcompensating for some grim thought she hasn't voiced? One hand pats at her hair while the other points at my chest. I'm so proud of you, she goes on. Living as you, living your truth. As if I keep spare realities in my lab coat pocket like a roll of lifesavers. Sorry, all out of cherry realities, I might say when asked to share. How about lemon? But I say nothing as Connie assures me in no small amount of words that there is nothing wrong with me no matter what anyone says. The more she insists, the more I wonder who she's speaking to, herself or me. Her words sharpen to discomforting knives. You're not some absolute degenerate, all prideful over it. You want to be like everyone, and that's good. She nods, almost prideful at her observation. So, when's your surgery? It doesn't occur to me that I should keep this to myself. Her insistence is overwhelming, her assumptions more smothering than a depositor latched to my face. When she's at last finished speaking, and I yet again don't know what to say, I thank her. She's right. If I have pride, it does not fill me. My pride shrivels, a raisin I might lose in my pocket with the lifesavers, truths, and spare realities. Here's a truth. I need to be helpless, or people like Connie will hate me. If I'm not her pet to verbally pat on the head, then she'll make of me like Maya, another alien specimen belonging only behind glass. Degenerate creatures, alive and yet lifeless, detached from genitalia, hostile and yet emotionless, overbearing with feeling and disruption, and yet still trapped. These thoughts often distract me when I should be focused on trifecta global work and safety, such as when I study the slimy, skull-sized depositors. Lucky or cursed, one almost impregnated me. I can't be so careless around the adult. Carelessness gave us the adult in the first place. There was another depositor victim before me, spaced out beside terrariums. Only he wasn't so lucky. The specimen found his face attractive, or however the other researchers want to characterize their reproduction, denying genitals and life and everything else. That depositor is dead, if it ever lived. Security found it squirming through the halls after it left its facial resting place and shot it to pieces. The researcher is dead, too. We hypothesized the depositor had eventually smothered him until our mortician performed an autopsy and found their small child gorging on the dead man's liver. It had already chewed through his heart, stomach, half his intestine, and one lung. Since then, it has shed full-body tissue many times. It is no longer small. The observation deck is a slender, steely room filled with desks and monitors on three of four walls. 
joke-covered post-it notes dot the bulletin board in a rainbow border around health and safety regulations about what lives behind this laboratory's last wall. It is thick, bulletproof glass. A square gate, ten inches thick with steel, offers the only way in and out. We enter to feed our specimen and collect samples of shed carapace. We exit each time as if chased by hellfire. Platforms and hammocks once filled the enclosure, twenty feet high and forty feet deep beyond the glass, as if we captured a strange, carapace-coated great ape, but a primate shape means nothing, morphological typography being limited. The adult specimen is somewhat reptile, a somewhat mollusk, much as we can discern about an unclassifiable alien species. We didn't even know the depositors bred an entirely different creature when their silver pod first screamed through Earth's atmosphere and crashed into an East Coast beach, where Trifecta Global snapped it up. In time, we learned the adult craves hard surfaces and a humid atmosphere. We've refitted the enclosure with heated marble flooring, steel piping, and hollow concrete cylinders. Our specimen has since draped most of the room in warm slime. Daniel calls the enclosure a marsh, but really, it's a nest. Like a spider, our specimen uses its own biological processes to reshape its environment. Or is that more like a human? The adult often tucks itself into hard nooks and crannies, and all sensors detect the stillness of sleep hibernation, or perhaps death. I think it's waiting, and I'm lost in thought as its spiny back unfolds with perfect grace from the mouth of a concrete tube. Midnight blue, bone-thin limbs spread from its torso. At full height, it stands over seven feet tall, and it measures ten feet from barbed tail to shelled head a nautilus formation curling to either side of its eyeless skull. And I wonder what it's thinking. What does it think of us? Yes, I'm distracted again. And so soon after my last encounter. But we aren't collecting adult carapace samples today. Protected by thick glass and the steel gate, I'm safe to space out. The specimen must be a lonely creature, born from a dead man. It will die inside this nest. We have no idea when, having barely scratched the surface of its physiology, let alone its lifespan, if alive. My co-workers would say otherwise because according to them, like the depositors, the adult has no genitals. Down its flat teeth, ribbed neck, and cagey torso, there is a pronounced pelvic bump. Nothing more complex. An artifact of growing inside a human host. But we can't know the specimen's truths. Its throat sometimes clicks and chirps, but human speech is not an artifact it is kept from its gestation. I don't speak to it right now, and it doesn't speak to me. Maybe neither of us knows what to say. My doctor warned that changes in hormones can shift attractions. 
body language, body types, body odor, across a spectrum of gender and sexuality. She meant that I shouldn't be alarmed if I suddenly found eyes for men, even in the sterile work environment of Trifecta Global, when I never found men attractive before. I would not have been alarmed. I would have welcomed any sudden attractions, attentions, or stimulations. Laboratory work is too sterile at times, and the office space even more so. Trifecta Global scrapes our personalities clean. Maybe this, too, explains why I'm distracted. I crave accidents and mishaps, and some workplace tryst would at least inject excitement between those cold lab rooms and colder cubicles. But I have no new attractions. Best I can tell, the feeling is mutual. I can't even manage friendships. Not before I came out, and not now. My sister batters me with relentless advice to get outside my underground workplace more often, seek company and companionship in the wider world. But Trifecta Global is where I spend most of my time, most of my life. I count myself lucky for small favors. Not Connie's overbearing welcome, but the moments when disdainful Maya holds the elevator to the surface, or when Daniel offers passing politeness. In the days since my mishap with the depositor's terrarium, the information I've slipped about surgery to Connie in the ladies' room becomes common knowledge. The entire office knows I'm taking time off from work to recover. Daniel finds me in the break room, where I'm struggling to keep the coffee machine from spitting in three different directions. Chen, he says, nodding. Just getting noon coffee, I say. A sort of apology. And I start to thank him, but that would be strange. Instead, I smile. He smiles back, tight-lipped. And I tell myself it's enough until he asks, Will Bianca be taking care of you? He's forgotten that Bianca is no longer a part of my life. Not over the changes, hormones, or upcoming surgery, but over me. Over who I am. How I am. She chose the loneliness, freeing herself to find someone who doesn't work deep in the earth and into the night. Someone who doesn't forget to call. Someone who remembers to pick up dinner sometimes. Someone who doesn't ask to be kissed like there's no tomorrow, or choked in bed, or held down with aggression and fury and passion, like I couldn't believe she loved me unless she was trying to kill me mid-coital, but she needed someone less demanding. She once called me a woman predisposed to patriarchal subservience, and I didn't know what to say, and somehow that must have proved her point because she was gone a week later. I've been thanking people for anything and everything ever since. My sister, I say to Daniel, without correcting him about Bianca. He would probably forget anyway. Before my last week of work, I draw the short straw of Friday night's graveyard shift. The one unlucky researcher who stays overnight... Security personnel remain topside, but no one else accompanies me in the underground except our specimens, 
and whatever paperback I've smuggled in. The whole arrangement is a security lapse, in my opinion, but it gives me time and privacy to read between checking sample analysis, depositor terrariums, and the adult in its nest. Often I'll read aloud in the observation deck and spook myself silly. One lone researcher in her alien charge listening for tommyknockers, morlocks, and earthworm gods. But this Friday, my cheek pressed to the specimen's glass, I tell it my secrets. It hears all about Bianca and Connie and the strain of work and my spacing out. I tell it everything. It may not understand or know what to say, but it listens. I can't know if it remembers. In spring, I take four weeks off from work. First to have tissue turned inside out and rearranged between my legs, and then to recover. Hormones fluctuate before and after, the world spinning and crashing every thought in a giant emotional blender. My sister looks after me by cooking, cleaning, and sitting with me through terrible television shows. But I don't help her in a way that counts. How to tell her what hurts. How to explain when the hurting stops. What about the hurting that waits for me? The kind without end. When I return to Trifecta Global, I bring great expectations. At last, some part of me has fallen into place. Everyone will feel it, and I'll connect to them. My doctor's warning about new attractions will come true. Except there's nothing. My shoulders are cold, and others are colder. Can we call a mindset misanthropic when the feeling is mutual? Only Connie accost me, again in the ladies' room. If the restroom is her lair, I wish Trifecta Global would tape a sign to the door. Beware of Connie, or the like. She is stiff. Her grin spread in manufactured glee. Welcome to real womanhood, she says. I wonder at her internal checklist the unseen parameters which dictate gender in her mind. Is there a hierarchy? Where does she fall among the uterist purist, vaginal gatekeepers, tit guards, and so on? Does she organize chromosomes? Does she classify hysterectomies? And let's not get started on partial or full mastectomies. Where does she stand on our specimen's genitalia and life status? I thank her but my tongue now weighs a ton. My doctor forgot to warn me about this side effect. Same as getting menopausal symptoms during the pre-surgery hormone break. Our bodies are biological carnivals, every ticket overpriced. Nowhere is this truer than in the nest observation deck. When I first visit the adult specimen after my return to work, I find it clamoring up pipes and grinding its shelled head against steel. It is bigger than most men, certainly longer thanks to the barbed tail, and yet inside the warehouse-sized nest, it is a small thing, sleek and blue and insubstantial. 
My heart bangs inside my sternum. Looking at the specimen's behavior, I wonder, have I ever truly understood loneliness? At least if I'm stuck scurrying underground, I'm with others of my kind. I can pretend to be one of them. Where missing Bianca is a human game I've played. Look, I'm part of the everyone. I fit in. It's normal to miss an ex. Couldn't it be more ordinary to despise her for leaving me terrified that I'll never know love and affection again? But the creature has no one. It doesn't even know where it came from. Everything inside me stirs with renewed heat. Another side effect I'm unprepared for. And my skin stretches as if it can't contain me. I crave fury and passion. A genuine human touch. Any touch. The specimen quits ramming its head against the steel siding. The nautilus swirls of its shelled head transfix my eyes as it turns teeth toward me. My world shudders. A tremor rocking through the glass and into my flesh and bones. I flinch back from the nest as a burning sun rises inside me. Blood surges in this new gravity, my heartbeat charging down my spine and between my legs. No, I can't be feeling this. I was thinking about Bianca, and my wires were crossed. And we can't control how our bodies react sometimes. And if mine feels that way, I should be disgusted. No, I am disgusted. Aren't I disgusted? I... should be. But I'm not. I don't notice I'm trembling and sweating until Daniel appears beside me and asks if I'm okay. Doubtful I'm anything close. But I lie to him and then thank him for his concern. There's no stopping my irrational gratitude train. I want him to carry on with his day, but he stares like he doesn't believe me. Sweat drops slide down my face, beneath my arms, between my legs. What does he want? He's glancing to the side, nervous, shifting foot to foot the way a hopeful kid might look when he's about to ask a girl to the dance. But Daniel can't want anything like that. I'm untouchable. Doesn't he remember? Now I see. He's nervous because he knows what I just felt for the specimen, which was really for Bianca, but maybe he can't read my thoughts that deep. He might be part of some new, unannounced trifecta global secret, an experimental program to generate clairvoyance, where he's the first human test subject. That doesn't mean his psychic powers are perfect, but they're enough, right? He looks at me, through me, until he finds the hormones at last changing my levels of attraction, and at my core sits a rumbling, wrongful arousal. I stammer out excuses, blaming after-effects of anesthesia, begging him to not understand. Nothing's felt the same since surgery, I say, intonating that as a bad thing. Dampening our euphoria is safest when envy turns knife-like in others' eyes. We ask forgiveness for our small joys by finding an onyx lining to these rare fluffy clouds. Look, 
It's still awful, see? I promise, no one's happy, especially not me. Your envy is wasted here. I say none of these things, of course. No worries, Daniel says. Listen, I know Friday's more traditional for this kind of thing, but I drew the short straw for graveyard shift, so that's no good. Maybe after I've rested up, we could... Well, what are you doing Saturday night? I don't know. Shouldn't he know? Maybe he isn't a psychic test subject after all. He might even be dissuaded from suspecting there's anything wrong with me. He opens his mouth to ask another way, but I can't stand his voice a moment longer. I rattle off another junk pile of gratitude and dash from the observation desk. At a glance, I notice a specimen still watching with an eyeless face. I've taken my coffee cup up the elevator and outside Trifecta Global. Fresh air does us good, right? It's a sweet May day. The temperature forgiving. The sky carrying just the right amount of clouds to make the world not too sunny, not too gray. And I feel terrible. My hands tremble around the mug. And the last thing I need is another dose of caffeine. But I sip anyway. My mug drains half empty when I spot the couple. One woman is statuesque, big-haired, and clad in glossy black leather. Silver studs line the ears, brow, and nose of her pretty dark brown face. Her partner is short and round, her blue hair undercut on one side. Floral tattoos wrap sleeves around her tan arms, where they stick out from the top of her pink dress. They are both magnificent. They clutch each other for dear life, and I can't tear my eyes from them. I don't hear Connie until she speaks, and then the clicking footsteps of her high heels, and the judgmental hum in her throat, and the slurp slurp as she guzzles from a can of energy drink. These intrusions become the soundtrack to my world. The sweet May day dribbles to a non-month, a non-existent time between dawn and dusk. Clouds now smother the sun. I can't stand that, Connie says. One finger juts from her energy drink. You see them? Do you see what I mean? I still haven't taken my eyes entirely off the couple. One tugs her partner's dress. The other tugs her partner's jacket. Their faces could not want each other's more without baring teeth and biting. They're almost a singular lovely creature. Absolute degenerates, Connie says. And again comes her judgmental hum. I mean, live your truth, but don't shove it in our faces. I study the couple as if from the observation deck. The only faces they seem to shove themselves into are each other's. This is not a thought I share with Connie. She shudders. And then she glances at me as if suddenly realizing present company. She's wearing a false skin. But for a moment, I've seen the carapace beneath. I can say that to you, she says, almost laughing. 
You're like everyone else, normal and all. I bet you and your ex were never like that. Her finger again aims at the lovely couple. I tell her we weren't like that, and it's true. Bianca would never have clawed and grasped at me as if we were tossed into the sea, and I was the only stretch of driftwood that could keep her from drowning. Or maybe she was a driftwood, and maybe I grasped too much, and she didn't mind if I drowned. I realize Connie is still speaking for some reason, and I don't know what she said except the end. They're not like you, she concludes with an assertive nod. You're good. I thank her, honored to be one of the good ones. But when I glance out on the blissful couple again, let the sense of them sink into me. I don't want to be one of the good ones. I want what they have, the absolute degeneracy, the passion... I don't want to be an empty shell of confused, swirling hormones and a dying sun's worth of love. I want someone to cling to me for dear life, like I'm the only thing that keeps them, to hurt me if they have to. Other women like me have it. Women like Connie have it. The two across the street have it. But I have... What? What the hell do I have? On Wednesday afternoon, I step inside the adult specimen's nest to collect tissue samples. While it hasn't grown to a noticeable degree in some time, on occasion it still sheds bits of stray dark blue carapace, and we researchers take turns retrieving these pieces with tongs in a box that amounts to state-of-the-art Tupperware. Humid air drapes my rubbery hazard suit. Warm fluid coats the floor and my boots squelch at each step. Slime dribbles down walls and pipes. Midway across the nest, a damp lump lies in the muck, sticking partway out from beneath a thick cluster of steel piping. The specimen sleeps, or whatever it does when it's lying still, on the nest far side, where a stiff back spine pokes from the mouth of a concrete pipe. Daniel stands watch at the open steel gate, He'll alert me if the specimen begins to move. Either I'll dart back across the threshold in time, and he'll seal the gate behind me, or I won't, and he'll lock the gate anyway, as per Trifecta Global Protocol. Either way, the specimen is never getting out. But if I might be sealed inside, at least neither of us would be alone in the final moments before it hurts me. We don't know exactly what it might do, but its big teeth, bigger hands and barbed tail make suggestions. I crouch at the steel piping and reach the tongs toward discarded tissue, my hands trembling. When I glance at the concrete pipe on the nest far side, that spine still sticks out from the darkness. I tell myself to be calm. We've done this a hundred times without incident. Daniel echoes my thoughts. Same as always, he says. I glance back through thick glass, and there's a pleasant smile on his face. I don't know what it's supposed to mean, but I force my hazard suit to nod, and then turn again to the discarded tissue. It doesn't expect anything of me. My tongues seize it by the sides. The tissue wriggles. But that can't be. 
Do my hands shake that badly? Steel piping shudders. And I realize the terrible mistake of having done something 100 times without incident. Exactly the same, every time. We assumed our specimen would never catch on. The spine across the nest is a shed, discarded chunk of carapace. The tissue I've grabbed is also shed carapace, but not discarded. With sticky fluid and two human patients, the specimen has jammed the piece back onto itself and played possum beneath the steel piping. A clever ruse, rooted in assumption. Now the specimen rises from beneath steel piping and stands over me. A tower of muscle, carapace, and barbed tail. The tongs and box shudder out of my hands and make wet sounds where they hit the floor. Daniel shouts to run, but I can't remember how. Saliva dribbles onto my hazard suit. The specimen reaches a hand the size of a dinner plate toward me. I lurch back too fast, and my boot slides on slick marble. I go sprawling to the floor. Same as when the depositor attacked me weeks ago. Mishap after mishap, and I once blamed them on myself. But now, staring into unforgiving teeth in the shadow of something truly alien, I wonder if accidents are by Trifecta Global's design. Are we researchers' test subjects after all? Do our corporate masters wonder how far they can push us before we quit or die? Our daily bread poisoned one way or the other? I can't know. I won't. The specimen's hand presses my shoulder hard into the warm floor. Its taut torso leans over me. Saliva splashes my face shield, and I watch the nautilus shell waver as if through sheets of rain streaking a car windshield. This is no longer like the depositor attack. The adult isn't a simple creature thrown off by some fluke of the environment. It's an intelligent, complex organism, and it hasn't set this trap for nothing. There is no cross-world absolutism between their species and mine when a barbed tail tenses to a point and aims at my chest. I don't know what to say. When do I ever? And I croak out, Thank you. As a tail pricks my hazard suit. It goes no deeper. The specimen pauses, tilting its head in confusion, an expression showing another artifact of its human gestation. Has captivity broken it? Most creatures, human and otherwise, suffer psychologically after prolonged isolation, and only another depositor incident could give the adult a companion. Unless, am I the difference? Does it recognize my voice? Does it remember the nights I've talked to it, read to it, told it my secrets? Supreme loneliness only ends when someone outside wants to help end it. I've had no one but the specimen. Does it have me? It lays another hand, this time on my arm. The warmth is sharp through my suit, and another blazing sun slowly rises inside me. My nerves stiffen to steel. I can't be so touch-starved that I want to lie here as if marooned on an alien world. And yet I'm not the only woman to feel this way before. Many of us crave what's not good for us. The bad boy who treats you right. 
the supervillain, will tear down the world for you. There's nothing like isolated gentleness from an otherwise dangerous entity to make a lady feel special. I have never hated myself like this, and I have never felt more at peace. Daniel charges into the room, unarmed and yet waving his hands wildly to scare off ten feet of muscled predator. The specimen lifts its hands from my body and turns to him. But he isn't paying attention. If he were, he would notice a specimen isn't going to hurt me. Instead, he hauls me to my feet and thrusts me toward the gate. Get out of here, Chen! He shouts. Run like hell! Maybe Bianca was right that I'm predisposed to patriarchal subservience. Because I half sprint, half stagger down the gate like I'm told. Daniel's on my heels, I'm certain. We'll be out of the nest. The gate closing our specimen inside. And this incident will go as forgotten and unlearned from by Trifecta Global as my close call with the depositor. Except instead of echoing footsteps, I hear a wet smack and a gurgling throat. I've already crossed the gate's threshold when I think to look back. Daniel crumples to the moist floor. The specimen's tail has pierced his gut, and a crimson flower spreads throughout his once-white lab coat. Blood seeps from his lips, and I realize the tail's barbs have dug up inside his ribcage. Our specimen is not broken or merciful. It knows exactly what to do when it wants to. If only I could have such understanding of myself. It isn't until I've closed the gate, alerted the rest of the lab, and led them back to the nest, that I realize I could have saved Daniel myself. If the specimen wouldn't hurt me, I could have dragged him out. I must be babbling these things because Connie's at my side, telling me not to blame myself. I was passive. Daniel was aggressive. And had I become aggressive, the specimen might have skewered me too. Believing her would be a relief. But she's too insistent on my blamelessness. As she's been too insistent on many things. And I can't listen. I can't. I can only watch with the rest of my co-workers as a specimen forms a nest around Daniel. Saliva and bodily secretions mix into a damp coating. He's already dead, but his organs are intact and the adult specimen means to keep them warm. Maybe for eating. Maybe for a depositor to impregnate the corpse, and at last give the adult a companion. That must be the reason. It will do anything to end the loneliness, or kindred spirits that way. Daniel's intended fate dawns on my co-workers little by little as they rush to take notes. We've never seen the adult kill a human being before. There's data to be gathered, and more of it should the specimen get what it wants. No depositor will come crawling into the nest unless Trifecta Global brings one. There is a too-long argument between the researchers over whether to fold Daniel's tragedy into new data or recover his remains for his family. I can't make myself listen. I leave the observation deck and cross the cubicles to the break room, where I take off my hazard suit and sob so hard I can't breathe. When I trudge back to the observation deck, 
Much to my surprise, humanity wins out. Two researchers don hazard suits, and when the specimen is seen returning to its concrete pipe, the trickster's spine tearing away as it nestles inside. They cut Daniel's body from its filmy bed and drag him through the nest gate. Steel closes behind them. The specimen is alone as before. I wonder if I'd been in Daniel's place. Would they have cut my body loose? Or would they let a depositor try again to impregnate me? The adult specimen might have left me alive for it. Paralyzed and trapped until those tentacles squeezed my face. Everyone would win. Trifecta Global would get new data. The adult specimen would get a companion. And for a brief time, while the embryo would gestate inside me, I wouldn't be alone. Connie would congratulate me on some new rank in her internal hierarchy of womanhood, welcoming me to some archaic VIP section for mothers-to-be, with fine print about babies from another world's genetic lineage. Would I thank her before the little one devoured my organs and tore through my guts? Trifecta Global places no new safety precautions over the lab. For all our hunger over science and data, we don't ever seem to learn anything. That, or I'm right about our corporate masters making test subjects of us. Quit or die, it's our decision. One issue remains. Daniel can no longer work the Friday graveyard shift. Most co-workers gravitate toward drawing straws again. But Connie and a few others grumble that since Daniel's incident was because of me... Not your fault, there's a difference, Connie insists, that I should volunteer to take his place. And I agree. It isn't like I have anywhere else to be, or anyone else to be with. Wednesday ebbs into Thursday, and Thursday becomes Friday in a blink. I come in late, but what else is new? career, relationships, hormones. I've always been a late bloomer in every way imaginable. While my co-workers trickle into the elevator as Friday afternoon becomes evening, I think of that couple Connie and I saw earlier in the week. Those magnificent face-suckers would have been the envy of the depositors. My co-workers leave for dates, or significant others, or some semblance of an ordinary existence. The everyone I should crave to join. But what I want is what that couple has. I don't have them because they have each other. I don't have Bianca because I wanted her to need me with a fury and love me with a passion like we were life and death. And that was too goddamn much. I was too goddamn much. I don't have anyone because I'm me. All I have is... All in the world is... It. I have it. Lost and lonely in that swampy nest. I have it. And it can have me. Elevator doors shut for the last time on Friday night. Eight long hours stretch until the weekend research unit arrives early Saturday morning. 
I wonder what they'll find when they come to relieve me. The nest's gate slides open with a soft whisper. Steel piping and concrete tubes surround me. A grim, lifeless world for a solitary creature. My bare feet press against slick, warm marble, and humid air drapes my naked skin. I come unclothed and unarmed. If the specimen wants to hurt me, I can't stop it. If it wants something else, then the feeling is mutual. It will do anything to end the loneliness, and so will I. Here at the room center is where it slaughtered Daniel. Blood still stains the floor, but the red is diluted. And I don't want to think about the way he shifted from foot to foot earlier in the week. The way he shouted for me to run. Maybe I wouldn't have been too much for him. I'll never know. I find the specimen tucked inside the mouth of a concrete pipe. Arching spines jut from the pipe's lip. And they're part of the creature this time. No discarded carapace meant to trick me. It wants me to find it, I hope. I hunch beside the opening and pause to admire the creature's rippled back. So alien and yet so familiar. More human than we've wanted to admit. As long as I live, these distractions will find me. I can't say how long that will be as I trace my fingertips down the specimen's firm spines. It stirs within the pipe. It knows I'm here. I draw back my hand, close enough to breathe down the specimen's shifting carapace. When that silvery pod crashed into the world, its hold full of the depositors, was it a life raft from outer space or an interstellar bomb? Whatever the arrival was meant to be, the adult specimen has had no say in where it goes, what it eats, who it sees. It can't decide whether to live and thrive on its own planet. We don't even know what their world looks like, and neither does a specimen. Until right now, it has lived a life without choices. I've come this far, made myself present, but I won't touch it again unless it touches me. It has to choose. I've never appreciated its grace so much as the moment it unfolds from the pipe in one smooth, perfect motion. There is a complete, natural beauty here, like a flower blooming in time-lapse. What must it be like to know your body with such precision that every unbending limb and pivoting joint forms a ballet of carapace and sinew? If only I could move with such elegance. There are muscles beneath its surface we've only begun to understand. I understand them better when the specimen pounces me onto the slick floor. Warm fluid soaks into my skin. My heart thunders. My nerves flare. Am I touching Daniel's blood? He's part of the swamp now, and so am I. Do I no longer get special treatment? Am I to await being plastered with fluid for a coming depositor? Should they ever be let loose from their terrariums? Thank you, I say. 
A dinner plate-sized hand presses my shoulder, same as two days ago. Another snakes down my waist with a crushing grip, but I don't resist. The tail travels up one leg, one barb scratching up my thigh before it whips away. Daniel was aggressive, but I am passive. I don't flail, don't fight. The specimen's taut torso leans over me, and a two-human mouth opens in a hiss. It weighs across my body. What was warm through my hazard suit now burns naked skin, as every part of it seems to grasp me tight. And it takes to me with a furious passion, like sudden sunshine breaking through the clouds. Blood swells between my thighs and welcomes the alien pressure. The rising sun inside me has found its... What does the sun need? Maybe it's alone out there at the center of our planetary system, same as me, burning across outer space and awaiting some cosmic lover to greet it from places unknown. I've needed this touch, and at least one thing in the universe needs me too. I can't tell if the pressure of its pelvic bump between my legs is another artifact of gestating inside a human host, or if its desire to touch me is something altogether alien. But I know it has never heard a scream like mine before. Daniel only gave it pain, but I shriek unfathomable ecstasy. My limbs slither from its torso, and my lover seems sated in its own way. For once when I should be grateful, I can't manage any aloud. My lover expects none. Its pressure never leaves, only shifts as its tail coils around my waist and draws me tight against its warm, rough body. I lie on my side, held firm and wanted. I stare across the nest at glass walls I've looked through a thousand times, but I've never studied them from my lover's perspective. The observation deck is dull. We should have plastered paintings and posters, livened it up for our prisoner. Maybe my lover has no eyes, or maybe it sees beauty in a way none of us can. Maybe that's why it lets me nestle within its perfection. There's something about me worth keeping alive, worth wanting. Darkness mixes with the humid air. I don't know if my lover sleeps, but I must have. Hours pass quickly in bliss, and I only realize that I forgot to close the nest gate when I hear through walls and down hallways the arrival of the Saturday morning shift. They're chatting good mornings and grumbling about coffee, and someone calls, Shen, where'd you get to? I don't know my lover's name, but I think it knows mine. It unfolds from my body, a beautiful blue flower once more, and strides across the nest toward the open gate. My muscles and nerves are a tranquil field. I don't tense to rise from the warm marble floor. Not even when I hear the screaming. There is no ecstasy in it, only pain. Someone who isn't Daniel is dying. Another scream follows at a different pitch. I doze as my lover works through the Saturday shift. It has never seen anything outside its nest other than the inside of a human corpse. 
and why wouldn't it want to paint the office walls with at least that familiar sight? Only when I spot a skull-sized gray shape wriggling behind the nest do I realize my lover has found the depositor room and smashed open the terrariums. I lie where my lover has left me, and the depositors leave me be. Am I still untouchable because they don't want me, or have I been claimed? When the wriggling and screaming have stopped, I at last rise on reluctant, shaky legs and leave my lover's cage. Nest is now a word belonging to the entire office. Work desks, meeting room tables, a co-worker's mug that says world's best dad. My lover has redecorated everything in swampy residue. Even the people. I find a body slouched over a wheeled office chair. The depositor has wrapped its tail around the neck, its limbs around the head. It is making a baby. Between the cranial hood and the lab coat, I can't tell who this used to be. I can't tell any of the Saturday crew apart. They're all white lab coats and gray depositors, and the embryos forming inside. All human differences erased by their new purpose. They don't judge each other. They don't call each other degenerates or normal. They exist, and they lie still. And they form a new generation, the likes of which the planet Earth has never seen. I scavenge briefly for food, water, and other needs. And then I turn up the thermostat. We will make this place humid and swampy, the way my lover likes. Soon, it comes to me. It's work finished for now. We crawl together into the tight space between two desks and coil around each other. Day trickles to night and into day and into night. The passing hours of fiction to the underground, where the only sun is the one inside me. I like to think that if my lover has never slept before, it sleeps now, pacified by my presence. Maybe it even dreams. I certainly do. We might only have these few moments to touch and love before our lives end. But I leave that doom to the future. Instead, I dream of a new earth that belongs to my lover's kind. Swampy webbing overtakes the cities first. Maximum population density yielding gargantuan nest from which pour thousands of depositors. They wriggle through forest and across farmland, into swamps and over coasts. Perhaps the deserts and other dry places will be safe for humanity. But we've made the world warm. The way their kind likes. And there may not be safe places for humans for long. Except for me. They are hard carapace and I am soft flesh, but I am part of them. And my lover will tear down the world for me. My colleagues once envisioned a queen to bear all reproductive needs of their species but they never considered someone who bore the needs of love. Pet or concubine, I don't care. Anything to end the loneliness. Anything to spread the love when I have so much to give. Once upon a time, no one wanted it. But my lover and its kind have a place for me. 
The one they won't hurt. The one they want. Death or everlasting life. I can't know the future. I only have right now. The sun rises inside me as I wake from dreams. Our lives ahead lie unknown, but my immediate need is present and real. Sticky webbing fills the underside of the desk, the office space. Center not only to the underground facility, but of the new world. A seed to soon sprout. From here, the children will wake up and feed. My lover twists as night seeps into another morning, and I follow, side by side, writhing and grasping. When I kiss its carapace, I taste primordial oceans and time curls into a circle. We are at the end of the world and at the beginning. Me and my lover and everything we will create. As it takes me again, I hear the elevator doors open, letting someone into the office for the Monday shift. I scarcely recognize Connie's heels, muffled against the damp floor, but I hear her slurping coffee and humming judgment about the mess and absolute degenerates and anything else she disdains. It doesn't occur to her anything's amiss until she passes a break room and spots us beneath the desk. She drops her coffee and screams, and I can't blame her. No research dossier could prepare her to find my lover's stiff limbs and rough tail coiled around me, my frail limbs encircling it, our nakedness grasping each other. But I think before my lover lets me go and pounces at her, that at last she understands she has been wrong about me. I am not part of her everyone. I do not want the peaceful life she's assumed for me like everyone else. I am indeed a proud degenerate. The kind whose degeneracy regenerates, who shoves it in her face. Apathetic to the eyes of the world. A dreadful creature far worse than she has ever feared. And through my love and pride, I am absolute. Thank you, listeners, for listening to episode 1110. Today's author was Haley Piper with their story, Anything to End the Loneliness. Today's story was told by Mary Murphy. To find out more about today's author and storyteller, please visit the wickedlibrary.com website and check out their bio pages. My name, again, is Sadie Hartman, Mother Horror on social media. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or you can go to the nightworms.com website and learn more about my horror subscription company that goes monthly to your door. The producer for today's episode was Meg Williams. Uh, The lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algi. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Vitesse of We Talk of Dreams. 
artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, the art director and executive producer of the show. The producer and showrunner is Daniel Foytik. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, LLC. All rights are reserved. Thank you.